We're working through this uh, series, which is, we've called it the Sons of the Father, which is really looking at the follow-on heritage, really, of uh, uh, the founder of the Jewish faith, a man called Abraham. Um, If you weren't able to be here with us uh, a year or so ago when we went through the series Abraham, it's available online, you can download that and you can kind of get the background. Really, it's it's essential uh, to come to terms with the fact that I think very often, particularly in our, in our generation today, in our way of thinking about the Christian faith, uh, we, we think that it's very much all about now, don't we? We think that it's all about the current, and we think it's all about faith in Jesus, which it is. All of that is true. But at the same time, it's great to be reminded that God has been working in this world right from the very beginning of time. This isn't something that God suddenly decided he had to work out when Jesus came into the world. Everything before was preparing for it, preparing for the moment when Jesus becomes clear and visible for all of us now today in the 21st century to look back and to realize and to understand they're the promises that God was making that find their fulfillment in Jesus. We live with promises, don't we? We all live with some idea of promise or commitment. We live with that day by day. We probably don't really think about it much. Five pound, ten pound note in our pocket that we hand over. We don't think about that anymore as a promise. Uh, In the early days of the idea of currency, that's exactly what it was. It was a promise that if you bring this to me, I will give you an amount of, of commitment, financial commitment. That's what it is. We still have that I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of one pound. That's if you remember one pound notes. <laughs> uh, it's a promise. In another way, we live uh, in a democratic country by constitution, by, by ideal, by principle. Uh, we live in a in a country where there are promises made that there are certain things that will happen to protect our democracy. So we're all already gearing up, aren't we, for the election next year, the idea of that promise that will be made, that has been made, that every number of years we are given the opportunity to re-elect those who are leading this country. That's what it is to be in a democracy. We are privileged to be in a democracy. Uh, Others in this world right now do not know that freedom, are living, however you frame democracy, they are not living in that freedom. They are living in the most hostile and terrible of situations. But we're living with that promise It's a promise which actually will only be fulfilled when it happens, but we believe it's going to happen. In the same way, God has built up the whole of the journey of our understanding of him on the basis of promises, our understanding of who he is. Step by step, he makes promises about who he is. This section is all about another promise. It's a long reading. At the same time, it's incredibly helpful that it is all contained in that one chapter. First thing that we see is a reconfirmed promise. 
there was a famine in the land. Isn't it amazing? It's just a little sentence. In fact, it's even it's a part of a sentence. And the narrator wants to make it clear there's a famine in the land besides the famine that was before. Okay, so if you've been working through the story of Abraham, you've seen that there's already been a famine, and now there's another famine in the land. It's just, there were, now, now there was a famine in the land. Eight verses, eight words. And yet, contained within those eight words is a mass of gritty, real human experience, isn't it? There was a famine in the land. We just read it. We pass over it. But let's take ourselves back and imagine at that moment in time, here is Isaac with his family, surrounded by people, and there would literally, on a day-to-day basis, there would have been people dying around him because there was a famine in the land. We read it as just a few verses. We pass over it. It's almost just a simple signpost. But here's a moment for us to stop and be reminded, how does God work? Where does God work? In what location does God work? God works in the reality of living in this world. He's in amongst that reality. He's there in the challenges, in the difficulties. There was a famine in the land and people were dying. We, by God's astounding grace, do not experience that in this country. But we are also given the opportunity with the amazing developments in communication technology to be given glimpses of what that is like. Huge shifts of population, deciding how, not deciding to go on a journey. It's not what it's about, is it? It's making life and death decisions. How are we going to survive? How are we going to live? Are we going to make it through? Are we going to take the risk of making that journey? Because after all, making a journey expends energy. Making a journey makes commitments to needs. You can't make a journey on an empty stomach. It's a commitment to say, a risk, I'm going to make that journey in the hope that by making that journey, I might live. Now, it's complete, I think from a human perspective, it is completely understandable when we look at tragedies like that and we ask the question, where's God? Where is God in all of those challenges, in all of those difficulties? Well, I can't answer that for every situation, but I know in this famine, God is there. I know that God is there in every other situation. I just don't understand everywhere else where he's working, but I know where he's working here. I know where he's working here. Because in the middle of that famine, there is a reconfirmed promise. Look at verse 4. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give them all these lands and through their offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees in and my instructions. Why, why was that promise made? 
Why does God make that promise? Why does he reaffirm that promise to Isaac at that moment in time? Because previously he said to Isaac, in that what should I do decision, I'm telling you, Isaac, stay here. Stay in this land because this is the land that I have given you. That is a huge commitment to make, isn't it? In the middle of a famine, when you see people dying around you, literally, to be committed to the idea of what God has said and to stay is a huge step of faith. It's a commitment to make. And what we see is Isaac making just that commitment. And the foundation of that commitment is because he believed that the promise that God had made his father Abraham And the the fact that God had now made that promise again to Isaac was what God was about. In other words, Isaac is sat there thinking, okay, if God is wanting me to be in this land because he has given me this land, the only way for me to be given that land is obviously if I survive. Isn't it? It's a belief in God. It's a commitment that Isaac is saying, I believe you. Way back in Genesis 12, the commitment has been made to Abraham, and God says it again. Isaac, stay here. We don't generally. Sometimes we have that clear guidance from God, that clear word from God. But generally, you know, getting on with life, aren't we? We're just getting on with life. In fact, my own personal experience and the experience of lots and lots of conversations with different people down through the years, I think this is true. We don't really think much about how God is shaping us until we get to our famine moments. (laughs) When we get to those moments of challenge and difficulty and crisis, and then we're saying... God, what should I do? What what should I do now? You know, the great news is, it's not as though God pops up at that moment and says, it's okay. He's always been there. In the times when we've forgotten it, in the times when we're just getting on with life, when we're not realizing that we're in one of those famine moments, God is there. You see, that promise to Abraham and subsequently to Isaac, that I have given you this land, was there when the food was plentiful, and it was there when the food was scarce. God was there. I think we need to remember that, don't we? What kind of God do we believe in? We believe in a God who is there, no matter what, whose promises to us are consistent, no matter what. Jesus made a similar promise. He said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you. That sounds just a wacky promise for Jesus to make. How can Jesus make that promise when he dies, raised again, and returns to heaven? How can he make that promise? How can you and I experience that promise today? Because he promised that his presence would be indwelling within us and amongst us by the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. 
I'm with you. I'll never leave you. Now, here's the thing. I guess most of us who've walked the pathway for any length of time can attest to the fact that we really are conscious of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of God's presence when times are tough. (laughs) And sometimes we need to be reminded that you might be going through a really blessed time at the moment. God's there. Don't forget it. Don't imagine that this is about your doing. Don't imagine that this is about your success. But equally, you might be going through a really tough time. God's there. Don't forget it. Because the same promises are from the same God. So the first thing we see, we see a reconfirmed promise. Second thing we see is a replayed doubt. A replayed doubt. So he makes that decision. We've got to remember that when we read about um, words in the Old Testament like cities, like kings, like uh, people group, all of those kind of things, generally speaking, in the early parts of the Old Testament, they are relatively small groups of people. You could be the king of a village. You could be the king of a small town. A small town would be a city. So the relatively small groups of people. And this small family, Abraham, the father has died, Isaac is continuing with his wife Rebecca and and the the family the wider family around them, Jacob and Esau now born, and there are there is a, a gathering of people around them. They are a small community, if you like a, a, a traveling community, living in tents, and surrounded by other people groups. One of those is the Philistines, we see in verse 8. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, is one of those people who are located nearby. So he's surrounded by this. God has said, stay here. Stay amongst this. Don't be scared of this. There's a famine, but I'll provide for you, even though you are surrounded by other people who are probably uh, looking for the same scarce resource that you're looking for. I'll keep you. And Isaac looks at this situation. He says, look at my wife. She's beautiful. And look around. And when I see what I'm surrounded by, when I move close to one of these cities, small groups of people, the Philistines in this case. Do you know, I'm terrified because there's every possibility that I'll be killed and they'll take my wife because she's a beautiful woman. Do you know, I love the honesty of the disconnections in one person, in Isaac. I love the honesty of the Bible. I love that it says this is what he was like. On the one hand, he says, I'm going to stay here. On the other hand, faced with that fear, he makes a decision. I'm going to tell them that she's my sister. It's precisely what he does. A replayed doubt. If you were with us during the previous series in Abraham, that is exactly what Abraham does. Exactly. Precisely the same fear, precisely the same decision, 
I'm going to say that she's my sister. So on the one hand, he's been able to step there and say, I'm committed to believing that God will keep me safe. I believe that God will keep me safe. And yet, the very next breath, he's not able to take that into day-to-day decisions. You know, the big decision. Do we go on an 18-month, 12-month, 6-month journey to try to find food? No, we're going to do that because God said stay. But in the next few hours decision of being surrounded by these people, I'm I'm going to say that she's my sister because they might kill me. I've worked out that God will keep me safe in the big decision, but there's an inability to believe that God will keep me safe in the little decision. Just the little thing. It's your wife, isn't it? Yeah, it's my wife. And I know you won't kill me because God said that he's going to keep me safe. Disconnect. Yeah, she's beautiful. She's my sister. Just in case you're going to kill me. Because she's beautiful. And I just think, wow. I am so thankful that the Bible is honest about people like Isaac. You know, the ancient writings, whenever we see ancient writings, generally speaking, what we see is individuals who are proclaimed as heroes. And their patterns of life are consistently patterns of heroic venture. And yet what we see here is heroic failures. Ordinary people who are prepared again to replay doubt. Like father, like son. Replay doubt. I can, I can be confident in the big issues in life. I know that God has my... God, I know. Here's a personal perspective. Maybe it's something that you can relate to. I really believe that God has me for eternity. I believe that my eternity is safe in heaven and ultimately on a re-established heaven and earth. I believe that he has me. I believe that I am an eternal being and when he says that I have saved you, I have saved you for eternity. I believe that. And then day to day I find that my actual practice doesn't live to that day to day. I find there are silly little decisions. I find there are little steps where what is revealed is not that big faith, but the stumbling, issues of doubt and question and little issues where I don't live as I ought to live. Do you relate to that? Is that something that you can say, yeah, I, I relate to that, I understand, I don't walk as I ought to walk. It's so true, isn't it? I think there's two things that we can do with that. The first thing is we say, do you know what? I need, number one, to not go into the corner of a darkened room with a birch stick and beat myself up. I don't need to do that. These little realities are not there to beat myself up. They are there as a reflection to remind me, don't live like that. 
In other words, the narrator is saying, God is really faithful. So live as though he's really faithful. Don't live as though he's not really faithful. But the reality is that you do live as though he's not really faithful because you don't trust in the little things. So I'm not going to beat myself up. But secondly, what's the narrator saying? Do you know what? God's the faithful one. God's the faithful one. See, it is not dependent on you. Isaac sat there thinking, I don't know, what's he thinking? It's not, it's not a stupid fear for a start. The idea that he might be killed because his wife is beautiful is not some sort of off-the-wall fantastical fear which is just off the page and you, you kind of look and say, shouldn't be so stupid. We're talking about the gritty, violent, ancient world. That's, that's possible. It's not a stupid idea. It's possible. But it's a recognition that there is practical doubt in the middle of theoretical faith. But the truth is that it is God who is going to keep you safe. It's God who's going to keep you safe. I I don't actually need to plan every little detail. It's not God's protection of me. It's not dependent on me working out how to be safe from these Philistines. It's not me working out, well, if they, I better do a bit of work for God here because they might kill me and then God can't deliver. God is going to keep me safe. I can trust him day to day. Don't we need to, don't we need to live more like that? Don't we need to look at Isaac and rather than, rather than beating ourselves up in our failures, just say, do you know what? Arm in arm with this other guy who's walked this earth seeking to be faithful to God down through the years and say, I can look back at your life and what do I see? I see a faithful God. I see a God who did not leave you, did not forsake you, and he said the same to me. Therefore, I'm going to look at my failures in the light of that faithfulness. See, I'm going to keep going because that's the same God that I trust, Isaac. I'm with you. So thank you for living your life, not as some unattainable hero, but as an ordinary person, living faith out in this world. So we see a reconfirmed promise. We see a replayed doubt. The third thing that we see is a repeated need. A repeated need. Famine is the Brock backdrop. Famine repeated in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. There's a repeated pattern of famines. Famine is an incredibly important, punctuating aspect of the storyline. Why? Because it is truly life-threatening. If famine is the punctuated storyline, what do we see repeated again and again through this? We see repeated the digging of wells. (laughs) Again and again we see wells being dug. We see them at verse 15. Abraham's wells have been filled in. Water is 
an essential element to life, isn't it? We don't think in that way, in quite that way, because after all, we can, at worst, you know, if we're really pushed and we haven't got anything that we can serve ourselves that we've bought, at really pushed, actually, it's all right if we're making a cup of tea, we can turn the tap on and we know that there's water going to come out. But actually, water is life and death in the storyline of the Bible. If you're watching the island at the moment, um, this series of guys who are surviving on an island, great story, loving it, watching it, you know, probably one of the few reality TV shows that was actually worthwhile watching, real gritty survival, collecting water out of stagnant ponds or little, you know, puddles and... And, and boiling it so that it's some level of being sterile and then drinking it. It's, it's great stuff. Love it. Fantastic. This is what this is all about. Digging wells to survive. See the way that's repeated again and again. Actually, just stop and think, what is, therefore, being repeated through the storyline? Salvation, in a sense, isn't it? Life is being repeated again and again in the storyline. Being saved. In the face of a famine, digging a well is being saved. What do we see? First, Abraham's wells, verse 15. Abraham's wells have been filled in. Verse 17 to 18. They fill in the well, but the wells have been opened up, so they survive, and, and Isaac prospers, and while, he's, while he is in Gera, he escalates in terms of his provision. He's blessed in a remarkable way. So they fill the wells in. And then the wells are reopened again, verse 17 and 18. So they're, they're sent away. Abimelech comes up to, Abraham, uh, to Isaac, and he says... I look at what you've now got. You know, possession, the, the, the recreation uh, of a people group, the, the multiplication of a people group, the multiplication of flocks, the multiplication of food is an, an indication of security in this world. So the more people you have, the more likely you are to survive the more likely you are to be able to ward off attackers. It's like, it's like Age of Empires, if you've played that game, right at the very beginning where you're trying to create a little town group and create enough people around you to survive. And Abimelech comes up to Isaac and he says, oh, look at what you've got and you've multiplied and you've multiplied and there's too many of you now. You are frightening to us. We're going to send you away. We've filled in your wells. You can't stay here anymore. So they travel. 17 and 18, they, they open the wells that Abraham, his father, had dug years and years ago. They reopen the wells. So having been banished by Abimelech, there is literally the fear of death. And then they are saved when they open the wells again. And then there's conflict in verse 19, 20, 21, and the wells are filled in again, on the, or, or rather access to the water becomes difficult because there's conflict. And so they move on again. 
They are living repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly with the, on the balance of survival, on the edge of death with the hope of life. Constantly, every time they are banished, there is the threat of death for their community. That's what we see repeatedly. Then they come to verse 22, where we see he moved on from uh, Sitna, the well of Sitna, and uh, he moved on from there and dug another well. No one quarreled over it. That just sounds to us like just glib, doesn't it? You know, nobody, nobody had a nasty conversation. But, you know, I had a nasty conversation at the well this morning. Somebody called me names. It, that's not what it's all about. It's the kind of quarrel that stopped you from being able to access it. Your ability to access life is cut off. And they come to another place where there is another well dug and there was no quarreling. There was peace. Rehoboth, they called it saying, now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. In other words, when they came to this well and they dug this well and no one quarreled over it, what did that feel like? What did that communicate to them? God has kept his promise from the beginning of the chapter. That's what he said, I'll do. I'll, I'll provide for you in this land. You know, for all of those months or years, however long this, this little uh, cameo is taking, every time the well is either filled in or every time there's a quarrel over the well and, and groups of herdsmen surround the well so they can't access it anymore, every time that happens, there is the repeated question in the mind of Isaac, is God going to keep his promise? Is God going to do it? He said, I'll, I can stay here and I will live. Is God going to keep his promise? And then he gets to a well called Rehoboth that he digs and there's no quarreling and he says, God's kept his promise. He's done what he said he was going to do. Isn't that interesting? The repeated need is the very means by which God communicates his promise. Those things that he fears is the way in which God communicates, I will be with you. Do you feel that sometimes? Do you feel sometimes as though every direction you turn, it feels as though there's a dead end. Every step that you take, it feels as though there's another barrier in the way. Every... There's just challenges and challenges in life and, and, and life is difficult and it's hard and it's, is God going to keep me? Is God going to keep hold of me? And then there's a little Rehoboth moment. It might not be that things get any easier in practical terms, but there is a Rehoboth moment. A moment when we realize, God will keep me. He'll stay with me. He will provide for me. Even if he doesn't provide practically, he will keep me. That's the kind of promise that we're talking about. This all-sustaining, eternal promise, I will keep you. 
so that if we, God forbid, end up in a situation where we are clamoring for survival in the way that we see this, and if we were in the community of Isaac, maybe a gathering perhaps this kind of size, facing famine, where people in a gathering like this, maybe tomorrow there wouldn't be as many here because the famine would have took one or two more. Has God let go of his promise? No. Because it's not just about the here and now. It's about the eternal God keeping his eternal promises. Isn't it interesting what happens? Not only is that provision, the commitment to Isaac that God keeps his promise, the fact that Abimelech sends them away, kicks them out essentially into the wilderness, and they survive, is the very witness that speaks to Abimelech. Look at what happens, verse 28. They answered, so Abimelech and some of his commanders come to Isaac. They travel from their home in Gerar and they come to Isaac. They say, we want a treaty with you. Why do you want a treaty with me when, when you've sent me away? Why do you want a treaty with me? You, you banished me. Ah, yeah, but they answered, we saw clearly, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. And so we said there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that you will do us no harm, just as we did you no harm, as we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. What? Sent you away peacefully? <laughs> It might have been a peaceful excommunication, but you were excommunicating us to death. You know, you didn't throw spears through our backs, but you sent us out to nothing. And Abimelech comes back and says, we didn't treat you badly. And yet, the fact that they survived was the very witness that spoke to Abimelech. I, I've been thinking about this over these past few days, and I've been thinking, how deep did that go for Abimelech? It might be that you're here this afternoon, maybe with a friend, maybe with a family member, and you're looking on at their life, and you're thinking, do you know what? I, there, there is something. <laughs> there is something in their life. And, and they might have said to you on many occasions, yeah, it's because I believe in Jesus. He's my Savior. He keeps me. Even in the things that you look at and can't come to terms with, I trust in Him. And you say, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's something, and it won't go away, will it? Here's the Abimelech moment, maybe, for you. Has that penetrated so deeply as you've looked on at that, where you have said, essentially what Abimelech says, I want a treaty with you, in a sense. I, I wonder, I wonder, I don't know, because it's not really clear,
But I wonder whether Abimelech might have really been saying, I want to trust your God. I hope that's what he was saying. It would be, it would be tremendous if, in eternity, he had to meet Abimelech. Because the witness of Isaac was so powerful, so clear, that he says, I want and I believe that. You might be here because you've seen somebody who believes in Jesus in a way which in the 21st century might seem strange, it might seem odd, and yet it is overwhelmingly clear that there is an eternal dimension in that faith where you say, I can see that the Lord is with you, just like Abimelech. And I would say to you, here's the moment. Are you going to make that decision to say, it's no longer about just observing, it's about making my commitment to that very same God? There's a moment. How are we going to live day to day? Are we going to continue to live day to day in a way which is just self-determining, self-protective, or are we going to live in the light of the blessing that we see in Isaac because of a faithful God? Because what we actually see is a reinforced faithfulness, don't we, finally? A reinforced faithfulness. Isaac lives, doesn't he? In the way that his father lived. He believes in the God that his father believed in. He trusts in that God. He stays put. Oh, it's not a a kind of utopian existence. It's not as though he lived in this kind of bubble where realities didn't hit him. It's not even as though he didn't exhibit his own personal doubts. He does. And yet he lives in the light of the faithfulness of the God of his Father. Look at how this closes. Verse 34 says, When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. This isn't bad mother and father-in-law, bad daughter-in-law story. It's not that. The narrator is making a purposeful comparison. Abraham made made his servant make a commitment that he would find a wife for Isaac from his own people, even though they were living in this land. And that's exactly how it worked out. And Rebekah traveled and made the same commitment that Abraham made in her commitment to Isaac. And now what do we see? The generation moves on now because it's about Isaac and Esau. And Esau makes a different decision. It looks like just a a kind of little statement at the end. They didn't get on very well. But the reality is what the narrator is preparing us for is the decision that Esau has made. I 
I'm not going to follow that pathway. That's not where I'm headed. I am not interested in the heritage of the faithfulness of the God of my grandfather and my father. Now, we don't live these days so much in the idea of those kind of heritages. We live in a a very different kind of community these days, don't we? But what we do see is the opportunity to look on and see the way in which faith in other people is a model for us, an opportunity for us to make decisions. In a sense, I think that is where we are as we conclude this afternoon. The contrast is Isaac's faithfulness against Esau's decision of unfaithfulness before God. It creates the fork in the road upon which the rest of the story unfolds. But equally, it creates a 21st century fork in the road for every one of us. Am I going to pursue faithfulness in Christ? Or I'm going to live in this world as though with this world is all there is. That's the decision that Esau made.